We want to look today at uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. So if you brought your Bible, uh, you can open your Bible there. It's always good to make notes in your Bible. And, uh, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you finally pass from this life, you know, if that's before the Lord comes and raptures his church away, and uh, your kids find your Bible, you want to look like you used it once in a while. You know, you don't want it to be like brand spanking new. You want to make it look like it got used. And uh, this is a good opportunity to do that. You know, make some notes in your Bible and, and open it, crease the pages, all that good stuff. Because, uh, you know, we, uh, we want to uh, be familiar with the Word of God. I, I, I'm toying with the idea of giving another commercial about reading your Bible through, um, you know, and using a Bible reading guide and, and, uh, and all that, but I'm not going to do that, okay? All right. <laughs> Luke chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 16 through 21, story that Jesus tells here that uh, we uh, can glean so much from. It says, then he spoke a parable to them, saying... The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, uh, you may read this passage and think this is like an anti-wealth sort of teaching from Scripture. And let me assure you that it's not. Jesus does not condemn uh, the man for being rich. That's not part of the narrative. Uh, it just mentions that he was rich and, uh, and you know, wanted to increase that. And we'll address that in just a moment. But I want, I want you to know, God is not anti-wealth. Um, and, you know, we spent the last few Sundays talking uh, out of Psalm chapter 1 about the blessed life. And that God's disposition towards us, God's attitude towards us, God's will towards us, is to bless us. And uh, that's not just some sort of ethereal sort of uh, figment of our imagination, uh, that's in real ways. God wants to, to bless us uh, financially, I believe. He wants to keep us healthy and strong. You know, if, um, if it was not God's will to, uh, you know, keep us healthy and strong, uh, then why did he give us the book of Leviticus, right? Uh, the book of Leviticus is, is essentially about staying healthy and strong. If you read it uh, that way, you'll, you'll see that God was trying to keep us from sickness and disease. It's God's will that we live healthy lives. Um, and, uh, and there's much to learn how to do that. Um, so I, I want to preface everything that we say here today. This is not an anti-money, anti-wealth uh, sermon that, that has... Uh, 
no, uh, no bearing on what we have to say today, but uh, more, you know, the, the thing that, that Jesus here is, is uh, giving warning to us here is not that, that somebody laid up treasure for themselves, and we all do that, you know, we look ahead to the future, and, you know, there might be a day uh, where we don't have the energy or the desire to keep working as much as we are today, Right? How many are looking forward to some form of retirement, right? Yeah, so am I. If I had enough money to retire today, guess what? I'd be resigning today, all right? We don't uh, always have the same amount of energy or desire to continue to working as hard as we are, um, and so that's, that's okay. Uh, I, I just throw this out there. If you read in Leviticus, uh, speaking of the book of Leviticus, is that the priests got to retire when they're 50, all right? 50 years old, they got to retire. I'm just saying I'm 63, okay? I'm, you know, not retired yet, not retired yet. But uh, so, so God isn't against us having some kind of wealth stored up for days that, you know, we aren't going to work as hard or uh, that we ha don't have the ability to work as hard. But here's, here's the warning for us, is that we are, that this person was not rich towards God. It's okay to be rich. It's not okay to not be rich towards God. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, you know, one of the things that we want to accomplish while we are here on earth, because this is the only opportunity that we will have, is to prepare ourselves for eternity. That is our number one job, okay, here on this earth. While we are alive, while we are living here in this life, our number one priority, our number one job is to prepare ourselves and as many as others as we can for eternity. Can you think of something more important than that? Well, I can't. If you believe in eternity, if you believe that, that uh, there is a heaven and a hell, then uh, you know that's a pretty important thing that uh, we need to make sure that we've got it right. There's nothing more important than that. Jesus asked this rhetorical question here in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36. He, he says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Important question. What is it worth, you know, if we gain everything? I mean, you are Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and whatever other rich guy all rolled up together, what does it profit you? You had all that money, and yet you lose your soul. Well, eternity, in case you don't know, lasts longer than life, okay? Lasts longer than this life. And this life is nothing but preparation for eternity to come, and hopefully we will prepare well. And um, keeping eternity central to everything in our lives is key to gaining what is most important for us here. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot of renewed interest. I mentioned the rapture of the church just a moment ago. There's a lot of renewed interest in the rapture of the church, the doctrine and teaching of the church about the rapture of the church. And, you know, we're, we're in a time of a big and rapid change. Uh, just seems like so much is changing. Uh, you go to the grocery store and uh, how many notice there's change in the grocery store? Or you have less change. Maybe I should state it that way, huh? Um, yeah, prices are going up. A lot of change there. Somebody just this morning mentioned 
that a bale of hay. Now, I'm not, I don't buy bales of hay usually, uh, but I, I did know, not very long ago they were $5 a bale. Okay, $5 a bale. You know what you pay for a bale of hay today? $25. $25 a bale. Change. It's happening. <laughs> and uh, there's uh, just a lot of things swirling around us. And when that happens, we tend to be interested in uh, apocalyptic teaching, eschatology, uh, you know, the knowledge and the, what the scripture has to say about end times. And one of those is the rapture of the church. And uh, essentially the, the rapture of the church is that Jesus, we believe someday soon, and uh, today would not be too early for me, um, you know, Jesus could come today and I'd be okay with that. I'd be just fine. He, you, the Antichrist, you have my strawberries, okay? Just uh, let him have that. But, um, you know, when Jesus comes, it, it will be like a thief in the night. It will be without warning and uh, there's not going to be a lot of time to prepare uh, if you haven't made that decision when Jesus comes. It, it will be in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible tells us, that Jesus will come, his church will be raptured away. And it will be too late at that point uh, to, you know, make preparation. You have to be prepared ahead of time. Now, why, um, why when you get in your car, uh, at least you should, you, why do you get in your car and one of the first things you do is buckle your seatbelt? Why do you do that? Well, it's because, now hopefully you will not need it, but you're prepared, right? If, uh, you know, uh, one of those, those uh, dip netters from Anchorage, you know, uh, is driving uh, irresponsibly, uh, you want to have that seatbelt on before you make any sort of contact with, with another car, right? Why don't you just, you know, leave it off until just before the crash? Because you don't know when the crash is going to happen, right? And uh, there's no time to put that on when, you know, if that event were to happen. And so it is with the rapture of the church. We can't wait till the last minute. We can't wait until, you know, Jesus comes and say, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to get things right now. Uh, no, we have to be prepared today at any moment. The Bible says that this event is going to be, is imminent. It could happen at any moment. There's nothing preventing from it happening today. And so we have to be prepared ahead of time. I don't know about you. I, it just seems like in recent weeks, we've heard a number of well-known people who have just, you know, uh, some athletes, some were, you know, people in the news. I, I think in one comedian in particular uh, that just died in their sleep, just didn't wake up. They went to bed, everything seemed fine, and, uh, and yet they never woke up, just suddenly uh, dying. And uh, I just think, wow, I hope that they knew Jesus as the Savior and Lord. We can go to sleep at night, and, you know, will we wake up in the morning? We don't know. Um, life is just that uncertain. And so we have to uh, live for Jesus, be prepared to meet him every single day. The, the, the person here of the parable that Jesus spoke, the story that Jesus spoke to us, he was planning on being around a long time, pulled down his little barns, made big barns, and able to store all of his uh, wealth and goods uh, for many years. And yet Jesus uh, says that, the, that God said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And uh, was not able to use uh, all that he had stored up and was counting on. So 
there's no warning, and uh, it's, it is too late until we wait, until we uh, need to uh, make preparation. We must be ready now. And it is a daily commitment to live for Jesus. It's not a, a one-day-a-week thing. I'm glad you're in the house of the Lord today. I'm glad you're in church. Uh, but uh, you need to also live for Jesus tomorrow, okay? I know it's Monday. I know it's Monday. But you need to live for Jesus tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And you just keep going. Because living for Christ is a daily commitment. Uh, being prepared for eternity is a daily commitment. You know, there's so much to distract us from our daily commitment to live for Christ. And uh, we dabble in the thought and feeling sometimes that we're self-sufficient, independent, and that we don't need to live out our faith every day. You know, that, that uh, we can kind of take this orientation that, you know, God is here to meet our needs and, uh, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, um, it's not about really whether God is here for us, and he is, don't get me wrong, but it's, the real question is, are we here for him? <laughs> and once we get that right, then him being here for us is absolutely assured. And, uh, and so we, we must keep in mind that uh, we are here to, to live out our faith every day and, uh, you know, little by little, we, we can be deceived into thinking that the universe revolves around us and our wants and our needs, and uh, we become consumers of our relationship with God. Uh, what does it, you know, mean to be consumers of our relationship with God? You know, it's, it's like how many, you know, of us could testify in some way that God has, has helped you and uh, provided for you and in some way done something for you. I think everybody could give some kind of indication that God has worked in their lives in a very real way. But sometimes when, when we take this consumer idea of our relationship with God, it's like, yeah, I know that you have done those things for me, but what have you done for me lately? And, uh, you know, that so God is here to, you know, provide everything that we want or things that we believe that we need. And, uh, you know, in a very real way, the picture of our text today paints a picture of what we really long for, a life of ease and luxury and self-sufficiency. Uh, isn't that really the American dream? You know, at some point, you know, we're independent and uh, we aren't dependent on anyone else. And I'm not saying that that's a, a bad thing, but it's, it's what we do with that. And... Uh, you know, Jesus' question or, or statement, I should say, towards uh, this rich man in the parable is, he says, every one of us is like that man who is not also rich towards God. Doesn't matter whether we have wealth or not, um, but we should be rich towards God. So how do we keep this balance and how do we stay rich towards God? How, how do we make that happen? Well, here's my first thought on this, is that we need to live our lives as stewards of our lives. And what does it mean to be a steward? Well, it means that we're not the one in charge. We serve the one who is in charge and we are servants with our lives. And, uh, you know, that uh, is a, uh, a big thing going on in our country. You know, it's like, who do we belong to? And uh, the Bible is very clear. He says, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. <laughs> and that we belong to God. And therefore, I am a servant of God. I am a steward of this life that he has given me to serve him. 
And, uh, and so in living our lives as a stewardship demands that we be conduits and not containers. You know, nowhere in the Bible does God reward selfishness or self-centeredness. You know, you won't find in the Bible anywhere that says, oh, you have been selfish and self-centered beyond degree. Here is your reward. You won't find it. Why? Because everything is, is the exact opposite of that. It's not about serving us and being self-centered. Uh, uh, it's how we can serve others and how we serve God. You know, they make reality shows about people who are the most selfish and self-centered uh, and make them examples of what we can aspire to and to live, you know, with fabulous wealth. And again, it's not a problem having wealth. I'll, I'll reinforce that every time. It's not a problem of having wealth, but it's what we do with it and, uh, and how we uh, possess what God has provided for us. You know, I'm not, I'm not preaching about class envy or having wealth is wrong. That's, you know, the problem is that we become containers instead of conduits. And, you know, what, what does that mean? Is that a conduit allows things to pass through, okay? It goes from us to others. It comes from God, it goes to us, and it goes to others. And that's the way that God intends our lives to be. That's the stewardship of what God has entrusted to us. Now, being a container, what it goes in the container, and it's kept, and it doesn't flow, it doesn't pass through. God wants us to be conduits instead of containers, and, you know, we, uh, we see in our world in which we live, it's, it's difficult to keep an eternal perspective about our lives. And, uh, you know, there's so much that we should allow to be flowing through us that God has, has provided for us. You know, um, the whole idea of being rich and poor and all of that is such relative terms. Everyone in this room, you know, is, is rich beyond belief, depending on our context, okay? You may think, well, not so much, you know, I don't have as much as somebody else, or somebody has a great deal of wealth, and, and I don't have as much, and it's very comparative, okay? So we can say that they're rich, and I'm poor, uh, and that's just a very comparative statement in this context. Now, you take what you have, I'm just, you know, going to ask a question, how many have more than one pair of shoes? I'm just curious. Okay, you don't have to hold up two hands, all right, just, just one hand. Um, if you have more than one pair of shoes, you are already richer than the majority of the planet. It's the context that differs, right? And if you have more than one coat, I'm a coat guy. I, I have more than one coat, right? I like coats. And already we have more than most people who are living on the planet. Uh, how many, maybe you don't eat three meals a day, but could if you wanted to. If you wanted to, you could eat three meals a day. Most of us in this room, you know what? The majority of the planet doesn't have three meals a day. So you can put our situation into a different context and all of a sudden we become the, the unbelievably rich compared to the unbelievably poor. Um, you know, anybody who has served in missions or gone on a mission trip discovers this real fast. And uh, I, I remember taking uh, a youth group to uh, Mexico City uh, many years ago now. And uh, we went to Mexico City, and uh, there is a 
five million person, at least it was in that time, I don't know what the population is now, a five million person community that lives on the dump from Mexico City. So where Mexico City, you know, all the trash and all the, the stuff that they throw away, they go out and they bury it in the dump. Well, a whole other city springs up and lives off of that, okay? A city called Chimauacan. And, uh, and you want to see how people live really close to the edge. That's a good example of that. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the young people in my youth group, you know, they were, they were doing this comparison thing, you know, looking at the way they live, you know, and compared to the way they live at home. And they were looking at their shoes and looking at, at their own shoes. And uh, when, we, uh, when we were getting back on the plane, we were in the airport, so many of my, my youth group, they were starting to take off their shoes and give them away and got on the plane in their socks because why? They had more shoes at home. This person didn't have any, or they had shoes where their toes were sticking out of, you know? And, uh, and so all of a sudden their understanding was, wow, I have a lot more than I thought I did. And so I, I want you to understand being rich or poor is really so subjective in, in our estimation. And, uh, you know, we can, we can get selfish because we don't have as much as somebody else. You know, somebody else has more than we do, and we want, us, we want more for ourselves. So it's very tempting for us to become containers instead of conduits. And, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. You know, those kids that gave their shoes away, guess what? When they got home, they got, they got new shoes. And uh, in that little moment, that little lesson of life, they became conduits of what they had. And uh, it's not that they now were shoeless. It's not like, you know, they're walking around on bare feet while they gave their shoes to somebody else. No, no, the, there was supply. And, and they got shoes. And uh, the shoes that they had given away, you know, were helping somebody else. A little picture of, of how we can use our lives to be conduits. And, and that can be uh, in the very material things, like handing a pair of shoes off. Uh, to somebody who doesn't have shoes, uh, to giving time or, or effort or knowledge uh, to someone else. Uh, it, it's, it's a life of stewardship. It's a life of allowing uh, the Lord to work through us, keeping that eternal perspective that God placed us here not to serve ourselves, but to serve Him. You know, while we manage our earthly resources, we also need to think about the stewardship of our lives. How are we giving back to God? Not get self-absorbed and thinking about com more comfort for ourselves and family and forget that it is God who has entrusted to us the resources by which we live. So life stewardship demands that we be conduits and not containers. So the second thought here is that the life full of self, okay, when we're full of ourselves, is an empty life. Okay? It's a paradox, but sometimes when we are full of ourselves, we are empty. What does that look like? Well, when we seek our self-interest, you know that we never have enough. We're, we're never satisfied. We uh, take this consumer sort of relationship with God. You know, what have you done for me lately? You know, it's the same uh, through the writer of the Psalm 106. If you're taking notes or want to open your Bible there, Interesting passage of scripture, Psalm number 106 and verses 13 through 15. This is, this is the writer of the Psalm uh, testifying about the children of Israel 
and uh, you know that the God had delivered them from 400 years of slavery. Okay, and uh, and then as they're you know leaving Egypt, and uh, they were pursued by the armies of Pharaoh. Uh, God did that little thing uh, that parted the Red Sea. Do you remember that? And uh, they went over on dry ground, and they got safely to the other side, and then the sea collapsed on their enemies that wanted to re-enslave them, and, uh, and so they rejoiced. And then all of a sudden they discovered, hey, on that side of the Red Sea, there's no water, and there's no food. And then what does God do? Oh, yeah, he provides water out of a rock, and he provides manna every morning. And all of a sudden he does these miraculous things for them, and he protects them from their enemies. And, and it, here it says in Psalm 106, verse 13, it says, they soon forgot his works. I don't know, when you read through your Bible and you read those accounts, they're in Genesis and Exodus, and, and you see, you know, God doing these miraculous things, you just think, how in the world could they, could they take God for granted like this? I mean, goodness, you know, he, he freed them from slavery. Goodness, he parted the Red Sea. Goodness, he, he gave them water in the desert. Goodness, he gave them manna to eat. You know, how in the world could they, could they forget God? But here's, here's the testimony, and I think it's a template for us in our lives sometimes. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. What does it mean to test God? It's like, okay, God, what have you done for us lately? Huh? Verse 15, and he gave them their request. But here's the interesting thing. He sent leanness into their soul. Full, but empty. We can't have it both ways. We can't just let it be all about us and our needs and what we want and keep feathering our nest, you know, more cozy and more cozy without allowing God to work through us as a conduit, not just, not just a container. We can't keep you know, excluding God and others and find fulfillment in our souls. Negative people are often that way and even though they have much, if they're not generous, if, not a, if they're not a conduit of the blessings of God through their lives to others, their soul is empty and lean. You ever met somebody and you don't have to look around or point, okay, just don't do that. Um, but have you ever met somebody who had way more than you did, were much more advantaged than, than you feel. And yet they complain. They didn't have enough. It wasn't good enough, you know, that, that somehow, you know, they, they weren't satisfied. When, when we're a container instead of a conduit, uh, that sort of bitterness and, and anger sets into our lives. It, it's the product of an empty soul. Matthew chapter 19 is another story that Jesus tells here and kind of illustrates this, this uh, principle. Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, it says, Behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, full but empty. When we become a container, we can fill ourselves with so much and still feel empty inside. It's a paradox. We can be rich yet poor. We can be self-sufficient but needy. The problem is not that this man had riches, but he couldn't let go of them. He was a container and not a conduit. And so it is with, with our own lives. How do, how do we allow the blessings of God to flow through our lives? You know, um, if as stewards we understand that we own nothing, that everything comes from God. God entrusts us to steward whatever advantages or resources or knowledge or talents and abilities that we have to benefit him. And, you know, we, we think that, you know, in our humanness at times, that it is in our best interest to keep everything for ourselves. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, you know, that uh, we should store more for ourselves all the time. And I'm not saying it's wrong to, uh, to have a savings account. I think, in fact, I recommend it. Uh, I recommend that you, you know, get yourself out of debt. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good thing. I recommend that you have a, a little pantry so you can meet your needs and, and perhaps help others uh, should that ever be needed. So those, those things are okay, but, but here's the, the situation. Is it all for me? Or am I allowing the, the blessings of God to flow through my life? In a humanistic way of thinking, it seems like the math pencils out that way, is that, is that I keep everything, and that means I have more. If I, you know, use my life as a conduit to bless others, then I end up with less, and we're afraid of that at times. This, this uh, young man that um, uh, went away sorrow after Jesus giving him the key to, to uh, what he was feeling empty of, uh, could not let go. And sometimes we, we feel that way. The truth of the matter is what is best for us is what is in God's best interest. Okay? That's what's best for us. Is, is that when we are serving God's best interest and when it is God's best interest, it's in our best interest. So there are two servants mentioned in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read there in just a moment. Matthew 25, that the master gave his wealth to and who worked in the master's best interest. If you can take the time and read the entire account there in Matthew 25, but uh, just to refresh your memory, uh, there was a master who had wealth and he had three servants and to, two, to one servant he gave five talents of gold which was an immense amount of money and uh, to the second servant he gave three talents of gold which was a substantial amount of money and to the third servant he gave one talent of gold which was still a great deal of money and he said I'm going to go away and I want you to work with this and when I come back, I'll call for an account. And so he went away, 
uh, for a time, and he came back, and he called his servants into account. And here is what happened. Verse 20 of Matthew 25, it says, So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The second servant, you can look at verse 23, same chapter, um, gave a similar report. He presented his three talents, and three talents more were made, and uh, his uh, master congratulated him. So they had, in the meantime, when the master was gone, had bought and sold and increased the wealth of their master because it was in his best interest that they do so. Um, so he comes to the third servant, and you can look down at verse 26, and uh, that third servant says, hey, uh, you gave me this one talent here. I went and buried it in the earth, and here it is just the way you gave it to me. I didn't want to be bothered with that. I knew that you're a harsh man. You reap where you don't sow. And so here is your talent back. And he did not work in his master's best interests. And here is the, the result, Matthew 25, 26. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. And they took him and they cast him out of the master's kingdom. So understand this, is that when we're working in God's best interest, we're working in our best interest. And uh, even though sometimes, it, you know, in a humanistic way of, of uh, calculating these things, it looks like, you know, hey, uh, you know, if I give this away or if I pass this along or I help in this way, there's less for me. Well, um, in God's kingdom, that's, that is not true. Maybe in a purely humanistic way that may be true, but in God's kingdom it's not true. You know, when we love somebody, when we love somebody, and it, love is expressed in a lot of ways. Emotionally, we think of loving somebody, we think of emotional attachment and uh, concern uh, for somebody. But, you know, when we give somebody who's hungry something to eat, that's loving them, Okay. When we, you know, help somebody who is in need, that is loving them. And when we love someone, you don't run out of love. You only have more. And anything that God gives to us that we allow ourselves to be a conduit of, whatever God has put in our hands, whatever God has put in our, in our knowledge, whatever God has put, you know, in our, in our discretion, when we allow that to bless others, we don't decrease, but we increase. When we do it in, in the Lord's best interest, we do it in our best interest. That's the way the kingdom of God works. What would it take for us to be rich towards God? What priorities might need to be addressed in our life to put us on the right track, to trust more fully in him, to, to be less self-concerned, less self-centered, and ultimately be prepared to, to meet the Lord? That's, that's an important question for us. I'm going to ask our worship team to come and prepare to lead us in a final song this morning. And uh, I think we love the idea 
that Jesus announced that he came to earth that we might find life, eternal life. And we might find life and that we might have it, what was the word more? Abundantly. We want to find abundant life. Where is that? Well, it's not in selfishness. It's not in self-centeredness. It's when we serve him and we do what is in his best interest that we ourselves find ourselves satisfied, truly full. Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus speaks to us here, he says, and he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Important for us, isn't it? He says again in Matthew 8, 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Paradoxes. Just makes so much sense sometimes in the natural. Save our own life, scrap and be selfish and self-centered and we'll have more when the opposite is true. Are you prepared for eternity? Are you rich towards God? I'm not even rich <laughs> without God. Oh, you know, it doesn't matter what our bank account balance is. That's all relative. But are we rich towards God? Are we here to serve his best interest? What has he placed in your hands? May be represented by five talents. It may be two or three talents. It may be one. But what are you doing with that? Are you investing that in the kingdom? Are you allowing the, the conduit to happen in your life, in your heart? Or are you saving it all up for yourself? It's an important question for us today. I hope that you live a good, long, happy, healthy life. You know, and I, as your pastor, I pray you all become millionaires. As long as you tithe, right? I don't think God has any problem with the balance of our bank account. We get hung up about that stuff. A million dollars is nothing to God. <laughs> but it's the condition of our heart. 